Are we facing a, a serious recession? I think you're facing a depression. In and America? I think, I, I think everywhere. Uh, the U.S. is not immune. Even China, by our metrics, their stock market momentum is threatening major breakage. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. I hope you're all well. Now, earlier this year, I interviewed Wall Street's Mike Oliver. He's the CEO of Momentum Structural Analysis. And we had big reaction to his on-point technical analysis of the US and global economy and markets. The forecast he shared was grim, bearish, as he made a compelling case for a major plunge in the stock market and talked about the risks of a global depression. Months later, Mike's analysis is starting to feel more validated as we've witnessed already a roughly 25% drop in stocks since January and all that amidst rising interest rates in America and around the world. That last point is crucial since in the US the Fed is eyeing more rate increases with its benchmark interest rate headed towards 4.5% or higher. The globe is awash in vast pools of money, money printing, easy money, trillions of dollars of it and it has fueled this massive inflation at the same time as global debt worldwide rises in real terms since the 2007-2008 financial crisis. We'll have Mike Oliver share more of his insights in a wee moment. Here's a little clip from that interview earlier this year. Because if they don't let this stuff go down, it's going to go down big, bigger than they, they, they will step in. And, you know, one of them, for example, the BOJ is not raising rates. So they're not playing the game. And the ECB is sort of in between. And, you know, the Fed has taken the most hawkish view. But the consequences of that action could create a new wave. So we'll replay the full interview I had with Wall Street's Mike Oliver in a wee moment. We posted it back in March and it got my attention recently as I saw financial events unfold and it's quite unsettling to think we may be on the cusp of a really tough recession, even a depression. I hope I'm wrong. The question is whether this recession, dip, depression, whatever it may be, something's going to happen. We're going to see a drop in our economy and our living standards. I hope it's short-lived. But the question is whether it will be accompanied by a big rise in unemployment. And many analysts don't think so. There is a labor shortage in America and throughout the Western world. Why this is so has many explanations. One of them being not enough young people entering the labor forces as family sizes in the West plunge. Western economies are aging too, and many boomers have retired that's one take we may see massive rounds of layoffs in this expected coming recession or depression we'll have to wait i find mike oliver a no-nonsense kind of wall street pro he does his homework in 1987 get this mike oliver technically anticipated and caught the crash of that 
period it was then that he decided to develop his structural momentum tools into a full-blown analytic methodology which he applies and uses today on Wall Street. But before we get to my interview with Mike Oliver, it's time for our latest segment of Future Shock 2.0 with labor force expert Ira Wolf. Ira Wolf, welcome back to Future Shock 2.0. Performance reviews, are they back in vogue? We're reading about them more lately. Yeah, this is this is almost frightening. And I'm, I'm quite disappointed and troubled by this. An article just the other day in the Wall Street Journal was that the dreaded performance review makes a comeback. That was the title of it. And it sort of drove me crazy because you're kidding me. I mean, I thought I thought the pandemic was the end of that. Unfortunately, it made big names and maybe this isn't going to be universal, but the CEO of Google announced that they were going to reinstitute them and they want everybody to be 20% more productive. And I agree with that. So I'm not I'm not discounting the value of performance reviews, but the annual once a year performance review never really worked. Uh, there's lots of good evidence that it never really worked. And and again, millennials, we talked about millennials and Gen Z on a few other episodes, uh, that they needed that constant feedback. Well, everybody needs constant feedback. There's no sense in, on somebody doing a, a bad job in in September, and but my review is not for six months. And so the manager sort of puts a little cheat note or a post-it note on his desk to remember that, hey, when I meet this guy in six months, to tell him that he did a lousy job six months ago, and there was no help. So one is they just were a very bad premise. You can't give feedback once a year, uh, and especially in this market. I mean, I think it's a crazy, crazy time to be able to do it. And maybe in the tech companies that are laying off a lot of people, they'll get away with it. Uh, but for the majority of companies, I'm, I'm here to say it's just a really, really bad idea. If you have an annual review, uh, that's a kind of a summation, uh, an end of the year uh, meetup with with the employee. That's a, that's really valuable, but they they're certainly going to need uh, you know monthly or uh, you know at most quarterly uh, types of conversations and feedback all along. But the other problem that we have is is basically because in the past you might have the same manager for a decade, John. I mean, we grew up in an era that that somebody was in place and you you had a relationship with that manager. And if it was once a year, it still wasn't a good thing. But now you may have three or four different managers during the course of the year. Um, to have an employee last for a full year is, <laughs> is sometimes a, a landmark these days. So you have manager mobility, you have employee mobility. How can I give you an annual review when I maybe was only managing you for two weeks or yeah. two months or three months? Uh, and then managers really aren't are unprepared. Um, they weren't very good at giving feedback and recognition and and doing performance reviews in the past, and the, and the criteria was always over the board, and and they were always loaded with bias. You know, there was something called the horn effect, which is the managers that said, "I'm not going to give anybody a five, uh, because then they expect more money." Uh, which is another dumb idea is tying these performance reviews, which is for growth and development, not to compensation. Uh, but you, you had the, I'm not going to give, nobody deserves a five and they'll stop working. And then the reverse is you had managers that gave fives or fours when they deserved a two or a three in, in hopes that that would motivate them and inspire the employee to do a better job. But now the real complication is you have remote and hybrid. You know, many, many managers don't have relationships with their employees. Employees are, are, are fearful because if you work remote and hybrid, it's pretty well documented. They're losing out on promotions because a lot of managers and supervisors and companies as a whole weren't very good at evaluating how do we manage, how do we evaluate performance? We can't see them at work. Therefore, we don't know what they're doing. 
Um, so the whole the whole system we're going to default to a performance review, so they can terminate people or hold people accountable. It's a really bad idea. You really got to think the idea out. That was Ira Wolf. He's a TEDx speaker, workforce trends expert, author, and host of the top-rated Geek Skeezers and Googleization podcast. Tune into Audion Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Audion Capital Group and yours truly. On our latest episode, we'll take a look at US and international debt levels rising interest rates, inflation, and much more. It's all on Odeon Capital Conversations on Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. And Odeon Capital Conversations is a top-rated Apple podcast. And in a wee moment, we'll have my interview from earlier this year with Mike Oliver, CEO of Momentum Structural Analysis. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. My guest is Mike Oliver of Momentum Structural Analysis, MSA, with his in-depth view of the markets and with some shock forecasts of what we may be facing as a nation and across the globe. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Michael Oliver, welcome to my show. Good to be there. Well, you're a Wall Street man. You've been on the street for many years. Since 1975, you started on the futures side, joining EF Hutton's International Commodity Division, which was headquartered back then in New York City. You're what's known in the industry as a, a technical analyst. You have your own firm. Technical analysis is one of those highly skilled specialized fields in the industry and a lot of bright people are in it including yourself just before the crash of 1987 you technically anticipated and caught it right and and that's the kind of thing you do just tell us a little bit about that and then about your company and yourself well i started on the futures brokerage side and i came to ef hutton in april of 1975 gold had just been legalized for trading in the U.S. in January of 1975. It traded first on the COMEX Commodity Exchange in New York, which at that time was about two blocks from the New York Stock Exchange on Broad Street. Anyway, I later moved to the World Trade Center. But in its, So I joined Hutton, and I frankly didn't know anything about technical analysis. I was, a, I was a gold person. I knew a lot about gold, but not about analyzing how a market behaves and moves and anticipating trend changes. Because, you know, we, we all are aware usually after the fact of fundamentals. In other words, what, what caused something to happen, okay? You find out later, but usually the technicals will turn first and indicate a trend change before you even know why it's happening. This is generally a true statement with all major markets, in fact. So we, we analyze for institutions and individual subscribers, all four major asset categories, the stock markets, bond markets, foreign exchange, and commodities, with an emphasis in the commodity area on silver and gold. And we know that these markets aren't now, especially now, I could say more so than any time in my years in this business, there are great icebergs bumping into one another. So what one does could impact the other, probably in an opposite direction, but could impact it. Some things move in sync, some move opposite. And right now we 
have been very good over the years in calling market tops and bottoms, stock market I'm talking. We think a market top has now been made. And we think the downside in the stock market, it will likely be a typical bear market, meaning a very large percentage drop, but not sudden, no crashes. In fact, in the history of the United States, there's only one bear market, 1929 through 32, that began with a crash event. The other crashes we've seen, like in 87, when that ended, it was the bottom. It went up. March of 2020, we had a crash event, 30, 35% in a matter of three weeks, and it turned up. Okay. So crashes are not the normal for bear markets. So don't expect that. What bear markets usually do is they go down in slabs and they give you rallies that tease you. So if you're a long-term stock investor and you're a believer in it, uh, which we're not at this point, every time there's a rally, you get all heartened again. Everything's okay. Okay. That's what happened. You go look at the 2000 to 2002 bear market, all the way down, there were rallies that just look lovely. 2007 to 2009, same story. A lot of downside, but a lot of good rallies. Expect that, but expect downside. There's certain obvious fundamental reasons for this too, not just the technicals that we analyze. And that is since 1959, every decade since, the money supply in the United States has almost doubled every decade, consistently. Regardless of policy moves by the Fed in between in during that decade, it's almost always been a double, double, double in the money supply. Meaning if you're in the swimming pool, the water level is rising constantly, okay? So if you look now, especially back to 2009, the last bear market low, when the Fed was panicked, everybody was panicked, the real world was panicked, it wasn't just stock market, they pumped the money supply up really good. And they cut interest rates to effectively zero. You know, in fact, they were you know, like quarter percent up to two and a half and then back. So a dozen years since 2009, interest rates have been on the floor, off, off reality, totally unreal. Money isn't free, but they made it free. So a lot of investors plowed that money somewhere, the big river flow, and they diverted it into what? The stock market. Stock market was the large beneficiary of it. And we argue that it created a stock market bubble. Uh, what's a bubble? It means something that's gone way too far for too long and is exaggerated reality, such that when the bubble pierces, you know, punch a hole in it and it unwinds, it's usually horrendous. And again, we don't expect crashes. We expect a huge percentage drop over the next couple of years. Probably the largest bear market we're ever going to see because the upside was the oldest and the most exaggerated bull market in the US stock market history. Repeat that last part again. The stock market move we've seen since the 2009 low has been interrupted with some few sharp breaks, but basically it's the biggest, oldest, and largest percent gain in the stock market in the history of the US stock market. It is a huge bubble. It makes the 2000 dot com top look timid. It makes the 2007 real estate top look timid. So when it comes unwound, there'll be many wave effects, not just in other markets, but in people's lives. And we argued back in October of 2020, so a year and a quarter ago, commodities were in the sewer. They'd been laying low for five years, from 2016 inclusive through 20. They were extremely depressed asset category. There was all the money the Fed was printing wasn't going into commodities. It's going into the stock market. So if this, as the stocks were making a bubble high, the commodities were like a beach ball submerged underwater for a long time. In October 2020, we called for a, quote, commodity explosion. It was the headline of our report. And since October 2020, we've, most commodities have exploded, and they've exploded in synchronicity. It's not like they, there was an excuse for wheat to go up 
but not corn. They all went up. Sugar went up. Cocoa went up. Uh, Cocoa is one exception. Okay, But most commodities exploded simultaneously, having nothing to do with the specific fundamentals of that market necessarily, but with a general asset flow into a cheap asset category. So large investors, guys like Ray Dalio, who's certainly not a gold bug, uh, and there's, there's others like him, have made statements over the last year of doubt about the sustainability of the pricing of the U.S. stock market. They doubt the rationale. Ray Dalio made a statement. He says, quit looking at the price of your stock and pay attention to the underlying value of your money unit because it's decaying rapidly. That's why prices are rising. Well, a lot of these asset managers perceived the commodity category, including stocks that are related to these commodities, like oil producing stocks, uh, agricultural related stocks, gold miners, et cetera, as better values, safer places to be than the normal stock market. So they started moving money over. And because those markets were so depressed for so long, when they started moving that money into these depressed asset category, they went up like the beach ball submerging above water level. Whoosh. Okay. Our assessment of the commodity category is that no, you're not going to top and go back down. I don't care what the Fed does or thinks they're doing. We've just begun an annual momentum uptrend in the commodity sector that just began a little over a year ago. Most annual momentum trends, when they shift, go for several years. We suspect, expect that what we're going to continue to see is a rise in commodity prices. And now we're going to come up with some excuses as well. You know, we now have a wheat story. You know, Russia and Ukraine produce, you know, third of the world's wheat supply. Russia produces a huge percent of the fertilizer that's needed to plant crops globally, et cetera, et cetera. So you have excuses to sort of feed these specific bull trends. But basically, the real thing underneath it is the movement of the monetary excess, not just in the US, but in Europe and in Japan, into an asset category that is still relatively historically cheap out of asset categories that are bubbles. It's as simple as that. Uh, this Russia event, which everybody is, is focused on, is a fairly new one. You know, it really began very late last year. It only came to fruition, let's say, in February, where we, everybody realized the, the nature of the event. But most commodity markets, like oil, which now being blamed on the Russia event, Ukraine event, actually had exploded well before then. We put out a buy signal on oil at $40. By the time this event unfolded, crude oil had reached in the 80s. And then once the event hit, it, it shot up well over 100 again. Now it's about 115. So you're going to see, yes, you're going to see some commodity sell-offs here and there. But they're not going to be sell-offs that sustain. They're just going to be sideways ranges, but at a new high level. Instead of being depressed at a low level, they're going to be at ranges that are very uncomfortable for the world economy. In other words, at high levels. Whether or not they continue up or not, they will continue up. But there'll be periods where there'll be doubt about that, where the, the oil will stabilize. But it's going to be at a high level and therefore a choking effect on economic metrics. So the other game player here are the central banks. And we know what the Fed's trying to do. They're trying to take rates out of zero, theoretical zero, and move them up to maybe two and a half or so percent. I think uh, Powell said he'd go back to two and three quarters or something where they were a couple of years ago. That, it's almost irrelevant. That's still very, very low. If you look at a long-term chart of Fed funds rates, that's hardly off the floor. Okay, But he's going to, quote, fight inflation, meaning commodity inflation, which is how he defines it. Well, these guys dismiss academically, they dismiss the stock price inflation, 
which went on for a dozen years. You know, monetary policy boosted stock prices off the page. They don't call that inflation. That's okay in their book. But now we have an event where stock prices are starting to drop and they're starting to bother some people and they should. Our metrics say that was the top. The only issue is the nature of the decline and there'll be zigzags. But other assets are also starting to break down and some sharply. And these are assets that most investors don't look at, like muni bonds, municipal bonds, local and state governments funding themselves. Well, it's getting more costly and it's getting more costly rapidly for them. This could be a problem for the Fed have to deal with inability of local governments. Wow, you've given us a lot to digest here, Mike. Fascinating stuff. Um, I don't know where to begin or end. We're headed into a bear market, correct, with stocks? With that asset category, yes. Uh huh. And is this going to be one for the record books? Yes, I especially think in terms of the social political ramifications. If you recall, the 2008-9 period did have some effects socially. You know, not just the unemployment, but there was some lot of lot of very hurt people. Okay, this should be even more hurtful in terms of the social dynamics that that come from it. Things we can't even predict right now. Uh, wave effects. Plus, at the same time, high commodity prices. So people. I'm trying to understand that point because it's it's critical. You said some social implications. Is that because the pain will fall disproportionately on holders of 401ks? Hurt pension funds. Class? Is that what we're driving at here? Yep. I think it's, it will not just hurt the so-called one percenters who are heavy in the stock market. But over the last year or two, by the way, a lot of young investors plowed into the stock market. Why? Because the game seemed to be working. They'd never been investors before. I'm talking, you know, the 20 to 30 year olds yep. who suddenly joined in. Yep. And I've seen some metrics that, that show this, this, this new wave of investors. Well, unfortunately, they came in very late in a bull market. They came in, you know, at levels now that are being approached as it goes back down. So their gains of the last six, 12 months are, you know, half of them are gone away and pretty soon they're going to be behind them. So that it's going to hurt them. It's going to hurt a lot of pension funds because over the last handful of years, the pension funds who normally would invest in debt instruments to get interest rates and yield, they've been denied yield because the Fed took rates so low. So they had to go somewhere else to make the buck to keep up with the pace of pension fund demand. They went into the stock market. And sure enough, they smiled because that bubble went up, you know, and they, they did well. If that bubble comes unwound, they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, they're in the asset category that'll hurt the most. So that's another factor that can hurt individuals. Can you put a number on or a percentage on the decline from peak to trough? I, I can't do that. Or even a range here, Mike? Oh, at least 50%. If you go back 50 and 50% decline in, in, in stocks over yeah, the next the high. In other words, S&P back down in the 2000s. Over what period of time? Next year and a half. Wow. Maybe even sooner. But again, without necessarily there being a crash at any point. What's a crash? A crash is... There's three metrics you can look at. The March 2020, 1987, 1929, all were almost duplicates in the sense that within three weeks, they dropped 35%. That's a crash. Now, something that drops 20% over several months, which the NASDAQ 100 did between its December high and its low that it's seen so far, was about a 20% drop over a span of two and a half months. So that doesn't meet crash dimensions, but it's painful. Remember, NASDAQ 100 is your leader index because that's where all the heavily weighted stocks are, the Microsofts, Amazons, et cetera. Uh, so as the pain is occurring there, smart asset managers are moving their money 
in percentages out of that category and into something else. Well, there was one other category they used to like and they used for the last couple of years coincident with gold. That was T-bonds. If you go back and look at the T-bond market or there's an ETF called TLT, which is a long-term government bond ETF. When gold surged into its high in summer of 2020, those markets made their high one week before gold did. Very coincident in their peak. Then they both declined into March of 2021. Gold dropped 20%. And those markets dropped pretty seriously, but coincident with gold. So they were behaving like gold. So asset managers over the last few years did have another alternative other than buying an inflation metal. They could have bought T-bonds, but that is now divorced. T-bonds are now going down with, meaning rising in yield, with the downside in the stock market. Meaning if you want that alternative, you're basically left with the commodity category and especially gold and gold related. It just sounds like a perfect, sad and distressing storm here. We've just come out of COVID lockdowns. Inflation is raging. And now we have a stock market decline ahead of us. And we have political upheaval across the globe and the sad spectacle and the brutal war in, in the Ukraine. Well, all those things will <clears throat> the, the, the central bank would like to blame uh, any downturn in the market or any emergency actions they have to take on the Ukraine situation instead of blaming themselves for the inflation. And again, go to the St. Louis Federal Reserve website. You can do it on Google it. You'll find it and type in M2 chart. It's the M2 money supply and go back 50 years and look at it and you will see why that money growth, which had been doubling every decade since February of 2020, so yep. for the last two years, it's gone up well over 40% just in two years. So its rate of increase has gone parabolic. And then look at an S&P chart and you say, oh, now I understand why the stock market did what it did since 2009, especially. The Fed did it. They printed money, therefore prices had to go up somewhere. And what they don't understand is asset managers and investors change their mind sometimes. Instead of favoring the categories the Fed wants them to favor, like muni bonds or high-yield corporate debt, which is also in collapse mode, or the stock market, they switch over to harder assets, especially harder assets that have been cheap for so long. And that game is not going to end soon. Dick Beauvais of Audion Capital Group, who studies the markets and the Federal Reserve very closely, would concur with your assessment about this massive unprecedented money printing. It's just caused this incredible chaos in the markets. But you seem to discount a little bit what's going on in the Ukraine for oil and some of the um, macro pictures we have in the market. Surely they contribute a lot. Oh, no, there, there's, no, there's, the there's, there's no question. There's no question they contribute. And for instance, the latest surge in oil from like the 80, 90 level suddenly to 130 in a matter of a few weeks. That was no question Ukraine related. Uh, so some of the markets that were already in dynamic uptrends got a boost from this. Wheat is getting a boost. Uh, agricultural crops will be a focus over the next year because it's planting season in the US coming up. And frankly, fertilizer is short. It's so expensive that it cuts into farmers' profits dramatically. And therefore, farmers are having to make the decision about which crops to plant that use more fertilizer or less fertilizer and whether to plant as much as they did last year. And, and this is a global issue, not just for the US. And so the Ukraine event, meaning Russia's supply of fertilizer, 
which I understand they have cut off, uh, is going to impact crop yields, which will in turn impact the price of a lot of crops over the next year. So while oils dominated the headlines recently, expect grains to also become food related because you know you need grains to feed cattle. So cattle prices could be impacted. It, the wave effects are terrific. And this is the point I've been making. Uh, and as the stock market goes down, the Fed is trying to talk like they don't care about that. You know, they, they've almost admitted that, well, even if we have recessionary effects, we've got to persist in this, quote, anti-inflationary policy we're about to leap uh, to go into. Well, I have a bet if that stock market gets a bit too low for them, like another 10 or 20%, and the muni bonds keep puking, and the high yield corporate debt keeps breaking, and commodities don't flinch, they're going to have a choice to make. They're going to have to support government debt, US debt, and local and state debt. Oh, they're going to have a disaster like you know they have created. They created the bubble. They're pricking the bubble themselves now. And once it comes unwound, my bet is you're going to see potential policy change back the other way. They can't afford to do that because if they do, their credibility shot. They're flip-flopping. Even people who are friendly to the Fed will say, gee, these guys don't know what they're doing. And when they lose credibility, and you know, you know the saying, you can't fight the Fed. Well, that's first off, it's not a truth. I can show you many times fighting the Fed was extremely profitable uh, in bear markets when the Fed's fighting the bear market and it didn't work. 2008 through 2009, 2000 to 2002, they didn't stop the bear markets. So, but once people lose faith in the central bank, what then did they have faith in? And I'm going to argue that it's primarily going to be gold and related and especially silver. And to some extent, cryptos, because cryptos have a virtue that monetary, that fiat money doesn't have. That is, they're not infinitely expandable in terms of supply. You can't double the quantity of Bitcoin every year at, at will. In other words, it yes, it's a volatile market because it's a baby. You know, it's like a screaming little baby coming, yeah. and it, it goes up and down violently. But in general, a lot of young investors have latched on to cryptos. And in so doing, think about what they did. They've in effect said, you know what? I don't need government money. I can live with cryptos. I can trade with cryptos. And pretty soon, more and more people will be buying with Bitcoin and Ethereum in terms of actual exchanges. It's happening globally. Once that happens, the central banks will lose monopoly control over their money units, their fiat money units. If the public finally discovers, especially the new generation, it's the first to discover it, that, hey, we don't need infinitely expandable fiat money to exchange with each other. We need something that's stable, that holds its value. And of course, gold does over time. We know that. And uh, right now we think silver is in a slingshot position to outpace gold even. So I think that's where the focus is gonna be for the next year or so in terms of where do I put my money? Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the US are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
My guest is Mike Oliver of Momentum Structural Analysis, MSA, with his in-depth view of the markets and with some shock forecasts of what we may be facing as a nation and across the globe. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. On crypto, Mike, it is a volatile commodity. It gyrates out there. As you said, there's a limited supply so that the general public, Main Street, as much as Wall Street understands, what drives the price up is investors and consumers pouring in and dividing it up into little fractional pieces, right? So you seem to be suggesting that more and more, especially younger people, will pour into it the price will keep rising. Well, it, it can. There has been a trend. We we do we have a Bitcoin report. Aside from our all asset category report, we also have a gold and silver mining report and a special Bitcoin report. It comes in every only every two weeks. And Bitcoin futures started in December of 2017, so they're fairly young in terms of the very liquid futures market, which you know gives it some integrity. Also, Ethereum is now traded in the futures market on the Chicago Merck. And we analyze them every two weeks and, and try to call their intermediate and longer term trends. But one thing we did well, about four or five months ago, we ran a study of Bitcoin measured in performance terms, relative gain versus loss compared to gold. And there were ads on radio and TV about Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin beats gold, et cetera. That is no longer true as of four or five months ago. We plotted the relationship between Bitcoin and gold. And yes, there were ups and downs, but Bitcoin was a gainer. It would gain more ground than would gold over the last, uh, since 2017, for example. But that trend, as technically measured, broke down about four or five months ago. At that point, shortly after Bitcoin came off the 70,000 mark and dropped back into the 60s, that's when it broke its relative performance in relation to gold. Now, that doesn't mean Bitcoin's going to go down in net price necessarily. It means it's not going to go up as much as will gold going forward, in our view. So, and we also noticed that, uh, for instance, Reddit, Wall Street, Silver, I've, I've done a few interviews with them. These are Bitcoin type people and they they love silver now. And so I think a lot of the people that were in cryptos are also looking over in the monetary metals. And I say monetary metals, not precious, because platinum is a precious metal and palladium is, but they're not monetary. They don't have the same type of movements that gold and silver do. But I think that that young investor crowd is also looking the monetary metals as a safe place to be. Uh, and I think it once it's perceived by others, their parents, for example, who told them to believe in fiat money, you know, put your money in the bank, okay, uh, will learn from their kids that, hey, these things are working out pretty good. They're holding their value. Yes, they're volatile, the cryptos, but uh, they're holding value. I mean, this is sort of plain devil's advocate, if you will. Gold you can feel and touch, at least... Yes. You know, it's a real commodity. Nobody brings stores it in their uh, drawer or in the bank vaults anymore. We realize all of that, but it does actually exist. Crypto is a, a, a digital currency. Isn't there a great fear somebody cuts the cables or some inventor of this, wherever he is in Asia, has a psychotic moment and, and does something weird? I mean, what about the safety and security of crypto? That bothers some people. We analyze the cryptos technically. So I'm really not an expert in that intricacies you're talking about, except that I do know that the ability to mine and expand the supply is gets less and less as the days go by. It's tighter and tighter supply. So that is a virtue in that, it, yes, it's a fiat piece of money. It's nothing behind it. There's nothing behind the dollar or the euro or the yen either. 
okay? But the difference is the central banks can print the quantity of those at will with the push of a button. You can't do that with Bitcoin and Ethereum. And ultimately, that will give them gravitas. Now, we also said about a year ago, beware crypto investors, because the jackboot of the state is going to try to come down on you because they realize that if, if crypto becomes a 10%, 20% factor in global exchange, it will undercut the central bank's monopoly power over money, hence their monopoly power over monetary policy, which in effect cuts the knees out from under government, which isn't so bad. Okay. Uh, and therefore, we figured they would come up with arguments, and sure enough, they have in Europe and here about how crypto is a criminal activity and it's used for money laundering and all this stuff uh, to try to come down on to regulate and contain crypto. Well, I, I wish them luck because it's not just a localized thing in the US, it's global. And the problem's going to be, it's already out of the box. I don't think they'll be able to stop it. Isn't the central banks worldwide trying to create their own version of crypto? I mean, the US Federal Reserve, they have, yeah. they have these brainiacs at MIT and Massachusetts trying to create one, and I'm sure in other central banks. So it's coming up on us. They're, they're trying to undercut the established yeah. cryptocurrencies. Well, the wise investors will realize that, yes, it may be crypto, but it's infinitely expandable crypto. The government will maintain its control over the supply and the cost of money, meaning interest rate levels via their crypto. Also, the crypto, as far as uh, the sense of privacy, you know, recently the IRS was proposing accessing uh, your bank account to see, you know, how many what you're depositing in your bank yeah. account, if it's over like 400 bucks or something. Well, you know, if they have a crypto and they can monitor they can monitor your bank account effectively via your use of crypto, you know, so that's not going to be real comfortable. Yeah. So I, I suspect if they do that, it won't be, it won't succeed. It's just a, another way of government to try to maintain control over the expansion and the cost of money, interest rates. But it won't ultimately compete with private monies. Again, I argue the better place to be is the place they can't track at all, gold and silver. Mike, I want to pick you up on this massive supply of money that the Fed has been printing for the last number of years. You described some extraordinary numbers and percentages. We heard so often about the 1% and how a lot of the money that was printed during COVID and, and prior even went to the 1%. It just didn't flow through the US economy. In actual fact, the uh, typical middle class consumer did not do as well. Now, we're not talking about redistributing the wealth or some far left socialist mm -hmm. cause here. We're just, just talking about the way the money flowed. Can you explain all that? Because a lot of billionaires became exceedingly richer just because of monetary policy, according mm -hmm. to some analysts. Well, most of that benefit from that rapid money supply increase. And by the way, the Fed not only expanded the money supply by over 40% in the last two years, which if you, if you put that on a decadal basis, it's still off the page. Uh, they also outright bought ETFs of high yield corporate debt. HYG is one and JNK is another. They, they bought the ETF itself. They bought muni bonds to support them outright. So they didn't just increase the money. They went in and bought these instruments to drive the prices up. So naturally, who was in the stock market the most? The one percenters. Where was most of the benefit of the money supply growth? It was the stock market, the one percenters. And so you're right. 
folks on the outside, except some of the young generation that jump in late, they probably enjoyed it for several months as well, but they've given a lot of that back. But the average person didn't benefit that much from it. And also certainly didn't benefit from the asset class shift, which drove commodity prices up out of the hole. So to the extent that their salary or their, their hourly rate went up, their earnings was offset by increased cost of living. So the middle class on down didn't gain. In fact, there's some arguments that they, they actually lost given the when you factor in food prices and gas prices, et cetera. So yeah, you're right. Uh, the, the wealth continues to be distributed to the those in the stock market. Now, fortunately, in the great bear to come, uh, those guys will be decimated to the extent that they hang in there. Those ones at the very top yeah. who have a yeah. lot of money in equities and investment. If, if they don't, if they don't get out and reallocate their assets to some other category, then they're, they've got a problem. They're going to give back that stuff. The safe categories for the ultra wealthy are commodities and safe, you know, assets like housing and gold. I, I wouldn't trust the I wouldn't trust the real estate and housing either. That sector is likely to go down again with the stock market. So yes, we've had a bubble there, but don't expect that to continue. That's a social ramification as well. In fact, that started before COVID, really, because that started with a perception uh, of violence in large cities. A real valid assessment. You know, a lot of housewives that come home to their husband in their uh, their townhouse in New York City high rise, and he's a CEO of a company, and she says, "I don't feel safe on the streets," and so they decided to opt out of the city and go out to the suburbs. <clears throat> they found the supply was limited, so they just said, oh, we'll "Buy a house outright, or we'll build one." And so you had a lot of housing demand, particularly in areas of the country like where I live, Colorado. Uh, and, and play in Montana and so forth, where people from Chicago and New York said, I'm out of there. I'm going to some place and build a you know a raw home from scratch. So the demand for lumber went through the roof and so forth and so on. And they frankly didn't care so much about price because they were wealthy. They just wanted out. So that was a social ramification that actually began before COVID. You know, we had riots and, and violence and so forth. And some of them justified, no doubt, but still it spooked people. Well, I don't know about all these riots were justified, but that's another. Well, you know, I mean, the, the sense that they were upset with police behavior toward, you know, and so forth. But anyway, the that came before COVID. Even. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can't. So I think to some extent that bubble may have also reached a peak. We measure the home builders as an index as sector and so forth. We see topping action in those categories. The lumber, I think, is totally topped. It came back, tried to make a new high again, but we call the high, I think it was May last year, it was $1,700. It collapsed to about $700, came back to about $1,400, $1,500. It's back down to $1,100. I think lumber probably has peaked as an expression of that demand. But of the categories that haven't, I think food, and that's very painful to people, not just people in the US. I mean, there's a lot of developing countries where food's going to be a crisis issue, and therefore create political instability. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's frightening to think about that. Where do you see inflation finally going, even as the Fed tries to I, I don't. Down? I don't have an assessment of that, tell you the truth, because I think the monetary wave that is yet to occur, which would be a response to a degrading asset category in stocks, a collapse in government bonds, which we're starting to see in Japan, the bonds in Europe, and also in the US bond market. When you start to see even what had been sent, sensed as safe debt, government debt, and you also see corporate debt collapsing, meaning higher yields are needed. 
the central banks are going to have to panic because if they don't let this stuff go down, it's going to go down big, bigger than they, they, they will step in. And, you know, one of them, for example, the BOJ is not raising rates. So they're not playing the game. And the ECB is sort of in between. And, you know, the Fed has taken the most hawkish view. But the consequences of that action could create a new wave of monetary policy that goes berserk because they have no other tool. They have no other tool. What do you mean by berserk? Well, I mean, the central banks really have no other choice but to affect the cost of money, meaning raise or lower the interest rate, the Fed funds, for example, or... And or print money, create and expand the money supply and hope, hope the heck it goes where they want it to go, which it won't uh, this time around. Why? Because the market they wanted to go into is a bubble and it's breaking. Now, if the stock market were at 680, like in March of 2009, it's a bargain. It had been 1570, it went down to the 600. So the S&P 500 was a bargain. It was a place to put the flow of money, not at 4,800 S&P. So their only policy tools are basically that, an outright buying of the instruments. And they'll revert to that again. So let me stop you there. So they'll revert to buying instruments again. They will pause on interest rates. It sounds like you're saying to me, or maybe reverse. Well, they'll try to. But the problem with long-term government debt, as opposed to the Fed funds rate and the 30, you know, the 90-day T-bills, which are more under the control of their policy, is that the longer-term debt is really can get out of their control. The people who buy 30-year bonds, the governments that did now won't anymore, let's say the Chinese and the Russians, certainly, uh, who's going to buy that debt You know, if it becomes in jeopardy? And technically, we assess that it is now in jeopardy, as well as the stock market. So that's a real problem for the Fed. They can't just abandon. They may say, okay, we can thumb our nose at the stock market decline because we need to fight inflation. But if the government debt market which we know has exploded in size, the amount of debt out there, is not being purchased. Yeah. They have to buy it. Yeah. And in order for them to buy it, they increase the money supply. So they're in a predicament that in our view, my view, and I've said this before in recent months, it wouldn't surprise me in the next couple of years that we don't have a Fed anymore. That the sense so of- the, public, the Fed could be eliminated effectively in oh, the US. I mean, it, you know, what would replace it, Mike? It's a big deal. It's been around only a century. You know, and what will replace it is uh, a, a hardback currency. No longer, no longer do we do fiat. We we create a currency that's stable, and uh, you know we go back to the way things used to be, where we don't have ultimate plastic control over the money unit and the price of money. Right, and uh, you know it's a new thing. It, you know, so the, 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 the U.S. Federal Reserve would be gone, but it would be replaced by some well, money. The, the, it wasn't it. there before. Mm. You know, it's a hundred years old. Yep. It wasn't there before. Uh, ECB wasn't there before. I don't know how old it is, but you know these things weren't always there. And frankly, there's going to be a, a consensus, we think, even among people who are Fed supporters now, that, hey, you know what? <laughs> this hasn't worked. We keep yep. going boom bust cycles, but this bust, it proves it hasn't worked. We need some other alternative. Picking up on that, uh, Mike, uh, you make great arguments. Some would argue it has worked in the sense that when we had the financial crisis and COVID, the Fed was in cahoots with the federal government to stave off a Great Depression, to pump money into the economy, to prevent ordinary Amer Americans having to line up at, at food kitchens. So it, it certainly worked during that period. It's, uh, it's like giving drugs to a guy who's overdosing. Okay. Yes, it created another year of vertical upside in the stock market. Okay. For the one percenters, it didn't help the guy in the street. 
And uh, when this new bubble, even a bigger bubble than it was before, okay, turns down, it will be even worse. So all the so-called positives that we think we saw temporarily could rapidly be erased. And my bet would be if that market continues down in layers, immunity bonds continue down, high yield corporate debt continues down, and long-term government bonds continue down, meaning higher rates, the pain for the average person is going to be far more than it would have been just let the bubble break naturally yeah. from its high in the mid-3,000s on the S&P instead of 4,800 on the S&P. Higher the bubble, the bigger the bubble, the bigger the break, and the greater the social implications. So the, yes, they extended the bubble, put off the pain, but it was going to happen anyway. And now you have pinpricks coming from various things. We have the Russia-Ukraine thing. Are we facing a, a serious recession? I think you're facing a depression. In and America? I think, I, I think everywhere. Uh, the U.S. is not immune. Even China, by our metrics, their stock market momentum is threatening major breakage. It has not had a bubble effect like we have. So if they go into a bear market, it's not going to be as painful as us, but it will reflect recessionary effects in China. Well, we're a major trade partner with them. You, you, they can't go into recession and us be in great shape. Europe is, is at best plateaued and arguably potentially already moving into a recession. And if you don't solve the energy thing soon, and you're not going to, watch natural gas, especially over the next weeks. If natural gas engages to the upside, which it hasn't done to the extent oil has, bet on it. Europe's going into recession. Well, we're not going to withstand that. Okay, We're going to have an inflationary recession that ultimately will turn into probably a depression. Well, the last time we had a depression in America was in the 1930s, and nobody likes to bring that up um, and say we're going to have it again. Something Would it be on the same lines? Well, in 2009, in fact, if you remove the state of Texas from the U.S. economic metrics, we were in a depression then. It was only because Texas was doing relatively well that it made the overall national numbers, because it's heavily weighted, you know, huge economy. I think it's the seventh biggest economy in the world. Uh, had it not been doing faring much better than the U.S., the U.S. net metrics would have indicated depression. Wow. So anyway... What's the final takeaway here for investors, Mike, for, let's say, institutional investors and for retail investors? What would you advise them at this moment to do with their money? Don't use leverage, but put your money into gold and gold related. I think that, yes, the gold miners, for example, is a very small sector. So when the large asset managers begin to funnel money into the gold related sectors, a lot of them don't go into gold futures or anything like that or bullion even. They go into the stocks that are related to it, just like in the energy sector, they've had a huge boom in oil stocks because a lot of investors won't buy oil. Okay, fine. The gold miners behave like a little puppy dog on a leash. When gold pulls back, they pull back more and they're screaming. When gold turns up, they turn up more. We expect over the next year or two that you'll see the gold miners will vastly outperform gold on a percentage basis. Gold's still the mama. So watch it. But the better places to be in the gold-related sector are silver and gold and silver miners. Don't use leverage if you're getting in now, especially because you're getting in relatively late. Remember, gold made a bottom in 2015. We got bullish at price of $1,140. We haven't changed our view since then. That was in February of 2016. Nothing's changed. Gold has since doubled. If you go back in history, it's commonplace three times there have been bull markets in gold in the last 45 or so years where gold has gone up seven to eight fold from its bear market low to the ultimate bull market peak. 
if we this current bull market, which we're still in and is re-engaging now, happened to go up seven to eightfold, it'd be seven, eight thousand dollar gold. Yeah. And that's merely replicating the three normalities of the last 40 years. So it's not like it's outlandish statement. In fact, we think the fundamentals are so great, you could go well beyond that. Where would the gold miners go? I don't know. Off the page. It doesn't sound like you see these interest rate rises that the Fed is um, signaling. Are, we're not going to go to seven this year. It doesn't sound in your language. It's not going to hurt gold. Gold has been beat up since June of 2021, five times with Fed minutes, June, mid-June 2017, when they first used, used the word taper, gold dropped to more than $100 in the next couple of weeks. It still couldn't go down low enough to take out its March 2021 bear low, correction low, excuse me, which was at 1673. It got down, in, got down under 1700 again, but never could get below that low. You had four $100 sell-offs in the last half of 2021. And then in the recent weeks, gold shot back up to its high again. Yeah. touching its 2020 high. And again, we had a sell-off from that high based on the Fed rate increase. It ended almost as soon as the sell-off began. And I think if we go back up to that high again, which is 2050 area, that'll be the third time you're there. A few weeks ago, summer of 2020, you will blast off if you ever see that level again. Are we in for succession of interest rate increases this year? By We could be, but I think that there will be doubt expressed rapidly by the central bank and its participants and its advisors and the economists who like the Fed, who will say, hey, you know what? It's not stopping the commodity boom, <clears throat> but it's crippling the stock market. And it's having, is all you need is for that stock market to go down and then have some metrics, so-called economic metrics like unemployment, jobless claims, yep. retail sales start to drop. That's when the Fed will have to say, oops, it ain't working. Is that when it loses its credibility? That's when you lose credibility because if they go back the other way to defend, and they won't do it with rate stuff, they'll probably do it with outright purchases, meaning their balance sheet. And they won't reduce the balance sheet to let yeah, which, which case, yeah, their rates may, may go up and level off at some point, but uh, they can't drop rates again. There's no place to drop them anyway. You're down at, you know, past three quarters percent is ridiculous. You, you're, you're at zero, okay? They don't, that's not a tool anymore. That's just a threat. <clears throat> and the only real tool they have is their balance sheet. And if somebody doesn't start buying those government bonds soon, and the they stock will. and you know, they have to do it. The balance sheet will expand once more sure. and yeah. in the land, Alice in Wonderland or whatever way you want to describe That's that. Right. Hey, Mike, this has been fantastic. Uh, we've covered a wide area. I'd love to have you back and just see where the market's at maybe in a few months and you can share your wisdom. I want to share this quote from the Wall Street Journal talking about your company msa looks at the market from a somewhat different point of view rather than focusing on price something that virtually everybody does msa tracks momentum revealing trends that have been building for a long time and have much more depth to them and staying power we discussed all that on our show and i've learned a lot and uh, we'll catch up again mike i look forward to it you are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699.
Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.